Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Cheese and pickle. Hello, this is Comfort Blanket and I'm Joel Morris. I'm going to be talking to someone who makes cool stuff that I like about some warm stuff that they like. A book or a TV show or a film or a record they go back to again and again for comfort. This time I'm talking to the writer and comedy actor Abigail Burdess. I know Abby from That Mitchell and Webb look where she wrote sketches and appeared in sketches and then didn't go up on stage when it won a BAFTA because I think she felt awkward because she wasn't Olivia Colman. Now if she had gone up on stage to collect the BAFTA, who knows, she might have won an Oscar by now. One of those sliding doors moments. Who knows where it might have led. Where it has led is that Abby's got her first novel out now called Mother's Day, which is brilliant. Uh, It's about a grotesque mother, which Abby isn't. For her comfort blanket, Abby has chosen the 1995 BBC adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, the one with wet Colin Firth in. Well, a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. <laughs> yes, he must indeed! And who better than one of our five girls? <laughs> me! What a fine joke if you were to choose me! Oh, me? <laughs> You have come onto the podcast to talk about both Pride and also Prejudice. Both of them at the same time. Are we going to combine the two? Not do half of the show on Pride, half on Prejudice? <laughs> okay, let's do that. Second half really racist. Yay! <laughs> no, you're talking about Pride and Prejudice and this is the 1995 yes, TV. Yes, you know, the Colin Firth one. So did you see this at the time when it went out? Was this a thing you sat at home and watched or watched on your own? Or? Do you know what? I think one of the reasons I like this so much is that I... Uh, wasn't didn't really have a home at the time that what? this came out, so it always was. It seemed like a really wonderful world to me, partly because I was sort of sofa surfing right. at the time, and so it represented a calmer life, really, than the one that I myself was having. So you were just sort of going from place to place. Were you sort of in that peripatetic sort of post collegey, pre collegey kind of time? I was. I think it's post college, and I was like. You know, I'd like sublet an actor's room when he was on tour. Right. And sleep there for sort of five nights a week. And yeah. then he'd come back for two nights and I'd have to just make myself scarce. Like you were haunting his yeah, property. Yeah, exactly. Like you were a ghost. Like I was that sort of, at one point, I think I was, I was sleeping like Harry Potter under the stairs. I had a, like a little understair bit in a house in Seven Sisters Road, which was like a massive house. Yeah. So it had a big staircase. Yeah. So the under the stairs was large enough for like a single mattress. This is the weirdest thing. I was about to use it as an excuse for what, because I'd never seen this before. Right. And the reason I was going to use it for having seen it is because at the time when this came out, I was sleeping under the stairs and a sublet house in Stoke Newington. So I had literally, I, I didn't gather around and watch Sunday evening drama. So my excuse was going to be the exact same exact as yours for why, why, why I like yeah, it. I was in a band and I was just sleeping under some stairs. That's so exactly I, what I was doing. There I you should go. have watched this. It would have given me this great is, comfort. There you go. <laughs> That's really weird. You're How the strange. first person I've met no? who's had a similar Harry Potter experience. Yeah, it was great. You were yeah. peripatetic and I was wandering. Per- very, you were a little hobo. Yes. I was a little, the tiniest hobo. And this was, was um, this a Sunday evening drama thing? I think thing? it was, I think it was on a Sunday night. I, I think the first time I remember watching it was on DVD. Oh, right. Yeah, as a repeat thing and then binging it. One of the first things that yeah, got yeah. binged in a flat in Kennington, I think. Did you know the book before the TV show? I'm a big fan of her work. Generally. Do you like her work? I do. do I don't know. She's quite, <laughs> I think she might do well. Yeah, I think she should be encouraged to write more. <laughs> 
I think she's going to catch on. You think about it, she is presumably the most successful comedy writer of all time. You're completely right. Yeah. Because Dickens, there's comedy in Dickens, but he's not, he doesn't write rom-coms. Yeah. They're dramas, they're melodramas. For the number of adaptations, what is it, six, six books? Six books, yeah. If you counted it in like actual dollar. Yeah, and also just not only being the most successful, but inventing the form. Exactly. There isn't one before this. This is it. This is the invention of the rom-com. Pride and Prejudice is the invention, right? Yeah. This is what you think. Yeah, totally. This is totally what I think as well. this This is the formula. There's one of her sisters. She's very pretty too. I dare say, very agreeable. She is tolerable, I suppose. She's not handsome enough to tempt me. This is the first time I'd ever watched it. I missed it because I was under the stairs. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't allowed out because my mean step parents used to be... No, it was not no, true. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I missed this. The first time I watched this was I binged this at the weekend uh, with a hangover. Six episodes in a row. I thought I'd watch one. I watched all six. It's really put together. But what stunned me was how formally all the elements for how you do a rom-com are there straight away from the very beginning. And obviously, this is a TV adaptation, so it's been slightly televisioned Slightly squeezed. Up, but not much. No. I or- think all the elements of the structure are there, aren't they? Like, I think they're in pretty much the same places in terms of like yeah. the midpoint and the bad guys closing and yeah. all, of, all of that stuff is in the same place as it is in the book, I think. It's, it's a masterclass in something which has been got right the first time yeah. and then everyone else has kind of built it over this chassis. Yeah. It just works. When I read the book with a view to adapting it, um, the first thing that, that, that came across was what tremendous speed and energy the book had. It really goes like a train. Um, there's something happening on every page and there's enormous energy, both in the characters and in the action. It's got the bones which are then going to establish the form. So structurally, it feels really, really strong. And I suppose that might be why it's so popular and still so loved, is that it doesn't feel old-fashioned because you're constantly exposed to things that are borrowed from it now. So it feels classic rather than old. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. In fact, I was reading the book. I don't know if this is in the Have they made actual, a book of it? They made a book of it. Wow. They did. I think they did it after the They sent it TV backwards in time. Show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Has it got 16, so, yeah. 16 pages of like, colour photos in exactly, the middle? Amazing. They extrapolated it from the, from the TV show. There's, um, there's, I noticed there, there's literally a bit about humble bragging. Really? Nothing is more deceitful, said Darcy, than the appearance of humility. It is often only carelessness of opinion, and sometimes an indirect boast. Jane Austen came up with the humble brag. (laughs) Bingley, I'm in no humour to give consequence to young ladies who are slighted by other men. Go back to your partner and enjoy her smiles and wasting your time with me. The flaws, I think, the comic flaws, are recognisable universal yeah. comic flaws. People are pretentious. Yeah. People are arse, arse lickers. Pridey and prejudice. Yeah, pridey and prejudice. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> there's those. There's those. But yeah, but like all of the characters themselves, like all of the supporting characters are entirely consistent. Yeah. Which is your classic brilliant comedy yeah. writing. None of them suddenly, you know, Mr. Bennett doesn't suddenly become anything other than capricious and yeah, yeah. self-important and wry. Yeah, within seconds when you're introduced to them, I mean, particularly the advantage it's got as a TV adaptation is, of course, that lovely thing that should be talked about, as in the classic BBC Classics adaptation is cast off the hook. It's just a brilliant cast. The, the second they arrive, you know who they're going to be, what they're going to be like. It's all sort of borrowed from that sort of David Lean, Great Expectations thing where you cast for faces. That immediately everyone is tagged to a, to a lovely performance style. They're recognisable. And each character, they're all pieces of character work. So you give someone a part and they can absolutely get their teeth into it and you know exactly who they're going to be. Yeah. And it's not like Benjamin Whitrow playing uh, Mr. Bennett. From his face, just says who he's going to be. Yeah. And then there's enormous clarity and you can follow him. And every time he turns up, you go, oh, I know what you're going to say. Yeah, that you don't, exactly, which is most of the joy of comedy, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Expectation and, and having it delivered, what yeah. you expect. Haven't you got happens. some sort of very, very clever little uh, I, saying that you have, I have. Chris? I, mean, it's basically, I think you have, Joel. I think you uh, invented it, didn't no, you? But you invented it's, it's, it. No, it's, it's all about, it's all, I mean, all, what you're doing when, when with comedy is you're playing with expectation and there are two things you can do with expectation. You can either surprise someone and go, I expected it to go left and it went right. Or you can delight people by by it being exactly what you expected. Both are really pleasurable. And the great thing about comic character writing like this is when someone behaves in a typical way, you are as delighted as when they surprise you. Of course, yeah. And it's just, they're, they're yeah. both they're both the, the important notes to play to get comic delight. And what Jane Austen does and what this adaptation does is set up a great cast of characters and then they behave how you expect. And then you watch the lead character change. Yeah, a little bit 
Just enough. Just <laughs> enough to get happiness. And even Mr. Darcy, you know, may improve on closer acquaintance. Do you mean he'll be in humour to give consequence to young ladies who are slighted by other men? <laughs> Never. But that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because that's also like life, isn't it? Like <laughs> <laughs> You've got to essentially be the same person. You, must we, you know, I just don't think we change. Yeah. Very much. Do you believe we're all I trapped think, in our own sitcom? Yes. <laughs> well, I think change is very, 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 very hard. And that's why I like comedy. Because, <laughs> it reflects because that. Because it reflects that. We're each of an unsocial, taciturn disposition. I'm willing to speak unless we expect to say something that will amaze the whole room. This is no very striking resemblance of your own character, I'm sure. Because, you know, you know I don't know, I suppose it's what you think we watch comedy for, but, like, I think we watch comedy in order to put our arms around universal human traits rather than to be reassured that we change. But the joy of a rom-com is that you get to do that yeah. while also going, if you meet just the right person, <laughs> you might change just enough not to be miserable for the rest of your life. Are you much acquainted with Mr. Darcy? As much as I ever wished to be. I've spent three days in the same house with him and I find him very disagreeable. The amazing thing about Jane Austen and the setup that she's got, which is very domestic and very small and about a very, very narrow class, is that the stakes are both as small as they can be. Can you find love uh, within a tiny class? And that's all there is. And also the highest they can be because this is existential. If you're a woman in this era, you're dead. You're unless dead you unless you've got... Yeah, exactly. It's like very, very important who you yeah. end up with. And it's very, very important, like bringing in all the stuff with Wickham and Lydia's shame. And yeah. the, when she's making jokes, the mum's making jokes about, oh, you'll put me out on the street. She will be put out on yeah. the street. So the the whole thing about the estate being entailed away and that Elizabeth Bennet has to... In ch- choosing to turn down her cousin, who's going to inherit her house, yeah. she could be making her mum homeless. Yes. Oh, Mr. Bennett, you are wanted immediately. We are all in uproar. You must come and make Lizzie marry Mr. Collins. For she vows she will not have him. And if you do not make haste, Mr. Collins will change his mind and he will not have her. I've not the pleasure of understanding you. Of what are you talking? It's by a boys and girls thing. If men are dismissive about Jane Austen, they say, oh, it's purely domestic. Doesn't have any of the grand sweep of Tolstoy. Yeah. Doesn't have any of the sort of social campaigning of Dickens. It's a tiny thing. And obviously Jane Austen herself is brought up within this almost sort of locked down tiny terrarium of a world. So all her concerns are tiny and small and domestic. And, but yeah, I don't go, think those are. But they're yeah. absolutely epic because it's yeah. about whether you're going to survive or not. Yes, I would. I would agree that the stakes could not be higher. They Joel. could not. It's a they massive story. It, yeah, it's about survival, and and the survival is on the terms of an existence. Which, if you viewed it from space, we sort of think, oh, it's just those nice women in empire line dresses in posh houses, and you went, this is like they're under the Taliban. They they can't work. They can't learn. No, they can't. Yeah, they, yeah. They are completely dependent on the capricious whims of men. The world is circumscribed. Well, they're oppressed, Joel. Is what they yes, are. Yes, <laughs> it's, it, it's got that. It's a strange. It's sort of because they live it, under profound oppression. Yeah, yeah. it's a bit handmaidy. Yeah. It's, it's it's really odd. You watch it because of the aspirational, and again, we talk about comfort, the lovely honey-coloured stone and the beautiful grounds and things like that. You forget that they can only go two places. They but can also go that in death, the house or they can go for a walk yeah. or to a ball. But also death <laughs> stalks them because Jane nearly dies or she gets very sick. Going out for a walk in the rain. High peril. You could, it is actual high peril. Yeah, it's very You strange. can actually get pneumonia and die yeah. and stuff like that. Well, my dear, if Jane should die of this fever, it would be comfort to know that it was all in pursuit of Mr Bingley and under your orders. Jane Austen said she was observing the tiny brush and painting it onto a small square of ivory, that thing of saying these are all miniatures. It's very small because her world was that small. But she's observing in enormous detail people for whom there are life and death decisions about whether they will survive as people. I don't know what will become of us all. Indeed, I do not. But also whether or not the next joke they make yeah. means that they'll survive as people. <laughs> So, yeah, I suppose that's yeah. Lizzie Bennett's superpower. She's funny. She's witty, yeah. yeah. She's funny. And so she's like, what What are you going to do with this, Lizzie? What are you going to convert this into? Is it a massive house in Dorset? <laughs> Perhaps the beauty of the house renders its owner a little less repulsive, Lizzie. Yes, perhaps. <laughs> perhaps a very little. 
So what, what about this? For you, you as a comedy writer, what, what as you as a female comedy what made you think that joking was a life or death thing for the women in this story? Yeah, I didn't occur yeah. to me. Because when Mr. Darcy first meets her, he says she's not pretty enough and that's his, that's his pride and his dismissiveness. Yeah. And he starts to fall in love with her. Because she's funny. Because she's funny. And he goes, oh, there's a, there's a, a, a look in her eyes that speaks beyond her beauty. And she starts to fall in love with him when she sees she has a massive house. And those are the two <laughs> simple journeys they have. <laughs> How do you like the house, Lizzie? Very well. I don't think I've ever seen a place so happily situated. I like it very well indeed. Oh, I think that's a bit unfair on poor Lizzie. But, you yeah. know, yeah, she makes that joke herself. Yes, but, yeah, when she sees the house, she makes a joke of it. She's witty enough and self-aware enough to know that. And she does in the end. She is funny enough to win herself a massive house in Derbyshire. That is the, it's, that is the, it's the joy. Yeah, it's, what is your social capital? And there's, I was talking to a friend earlier on about this and saying that when you see the adaptations of this with its sort of slight whiff of American money that makes it a bit Downton Abbey-ish or a bit sort of Bridgerton-y, there's a sense of aspiration to it it's very sort of aspirant middle class. But you forget that Jane Austen isn't from that background. She's from a clinging on at their fingernails version of that class. And this family are not secure, which no, is classic not, sitcom. That's yeah. pure sitcom that they, you Well, they're in drop. the middle. They've got stuff to lose and they've got stuff to gain. Yeah, it's not Downton Abbey. It's not about the aristocracy. It's about people who are dependent on the aristocracy. I think there was a, was it the Kira Knightley version of this that was done where the house was a bit dirtier and a bit smaller? And people went, oh, that's not as much fun. And you went, no, it it's, would have been yeah, yeah, a bit smaller. Yeah, a bit smaller, a bit dirtier. I suppose the massive class disparity between Lizzie and Mr. Darcy yeah. is really interesting. Yes. And really, really important. And you forget how often it happens. I just read Mansfield Park over the summer last year and I really, really enjoyed it. And I didn't realise how much there is in Jane Austen about people who've come from the wrong side of the tracks or might fall back down. And the, the stakes are all about social capital, which makes it like Frasier. The idea yeah, is yeah. you're social climbing, but your dad used to be a policeman. Even though the comfort of watching this for a lot of people is about, oh, there's posh people in the past, so very low stakes. But that's probably not how it felt when the book came out. Do you, do you think that? Do you feel like it? that's why people like it for comfort viewing? The trappings of it, if I sort of said, well, uh, why would you enjoy this for comfort? I'd go, it's a wonderful place to lose yourself. It's sumptuous. It's beautiful. Mm. The dresses are nice. All the things that make it secure, like it's in the past, so it's not set. I was mainly just, they had a house. So I was like, got a house? You've got a feeling of safety and distance in a way that if you're watching something about like, I don't know, uh, migrant yeah, families. Yeah, yeah. Okay. There's a sense of going, it's not a contemporary, edgy story where you feel the burn of it every day. The trappings of it feel sort of balls and harpsichords and lovely guys in military outfits. That's interesting because I feel like the threat feels very, it's particularly the threat of the younger sister running off being boy mad. <laughs> Lord, I'm so fat. And Lydia and I danced every dance. And Mary none. <laughs> what an absolute dick. Aye, let's call on Denny early before he is dressed. What shock he will get. Um. Our life holds few distinctions, Mrs. Bennett, but I think we may safely boast that here sit two of the silliest girls in the country. She plays that awful character who's just, you know, she's horrendous and puts, puts her sisters in total jeopardy. You meant, I suppose, that you and I and Mary and Kitty have been tainted by association. That our chances of making a good marriage have been materially damaged by Lydia's disgrace. Chances of any of us making a good marriage were never very great. Now I should say they're non-existent. No one will solicit our society after this. Mr Darcy made that very clear to me. Total selfishness and moronic behaviour. But it's also quite interesting that you see... Jane Austen's got clever eye, hasn't she? You sort of see the same traits in... Like, Lady Catherine de Bourgh is kind of a posh version of Lizzie Bennet's mum. Yes. Upon my word, you give your opinion very decidedly for so young a person. She's the same thing in that she's... Always telling people what she's like. Did I tell you a Lady Metcalf's calling on me yesterday to thank me for sending her Miss Pope? Lady Catherine said she, you have given me a treasure. Tell you what I'm like. Yes, is... it's the two matriarchs. They're sort of the, the cartoon mums. They both yeah, play good yeah. sitcom cartoon mums. Like the nightmare mum who says the wrong thing. One of them having enormous amount of money and sway can say her boring pedestrian observations yeah, and everyone yeah. hangs on her every word because she's very rich. Yes. Whereas Alison Steppen's character is a joke. The country is a vast. 
last year pleasanter than town, whatever you may say about it. Yeah. We laugh at her for being so... But you go, well, she's desperate. She's doing the same thing, but she's also doing the same thing. She's doing exactly the same thing. I think it's a very well-structured piece. He danced the first two with her, and then the next with Charlotte Lucas, which vexed me greatly. But lo, there in the very next, nothing would please him but to stand up with Jane again. And then you know he danced with Lizzie. And then, what do you think he did next? Enough, enough, madam. For God's sake, let's hear no more of his partners. Would he had sprained his ankle in the first dance? Oh, and his sisters. Oh, such charming women, so elegant and obliging. Oh, I wish you had seen them. I dare say the lace on Mrs. Hurst's gown No lace, no lace, Mrs. Bennet, I beg you. For something which is often portrayed and dismissed as saying, oh, why is it all about one class? It doesn't have the the depths of class awareness that Dickens has or something like that. And you go, oh, but it is amazingly good about the minutiae of class divisions within Within this class. Yeah, yeah. If you were sensible of your own good, you would not wish to quit the sphere in which you've been brought up. Lady Catherine, in marrying your nephew, I should not consider myself as quitting that sphere. He is a gentleman. I am a gentleman's daughter. So far, we are equal. But who is your mother? Who are your uncles and aunts? Do not imagine me ignorant of their condition. It's about middle class and upper class, right? Yeah. There is no storyline. There's no B-plot with the maid. No, there's no upstairs-downstairs. There's no upstairs-downstairs. The, the idea that you're somehow, by being in one class, you're, you're comfortably off and will never feel pain. There's a great reading within this of how important the gradations within that class are. To the extent, I love the way that every time a man arrives, it's like a video game. He's got a score above his of head. Of course. Just he's worth 2,000. He's yes. worth 10,000. If he, only he were worth 6,000 a year. His name is Bingley, and he will be in possession by Michaelmas, and he has 5,000 a year. The horse trading of that is the real awareness that the setup, the great stakes at the beginning, is that they've made the terrible mistake of having too many girls. Yeah. What a fine thing for our girls. How so? Um, how can it affect them? Oh, Mr Bennett, how can you be so tiresome? You must know that I'm thinking of his marrying one of them. Because the women can't earn their own livings. Yeah, but in a weird way, they end up being hunters. As in, they are hunting for their prey. Yeah. And the boys have got mm. scores above their heads, and the idea is, you've got to bag someone. You've got to be bagged or bag... It's well, in- there's that great moment when Charlotte Lucas realises that she's going to have to marry Mr. Collins, who is just the most oleaginous David little- Bamber, that I is mean, such a, a beautiful brilliant performance. performance. I don't know how he does it. It's something to do with what he's put in his hair or something. Cousin Elizabeth, you can see before you the happiest of men. He's stooped the moment he enters the frame. It's yeah, a beautiful he's just point. this yeah, horrible, isn't he? My reasons for marrying are, first that I think it a right thing for every clergyman to set the example of matrimony in his parish. Secondly, that I am convinced it will add very greatly to my happiness. And thirdly, which perhaps I should have mentioned first, that it is the particular recommendation of my noble patroness, Lady Catherine de Bourgh. Mr. Collins, she said, you must marry. Imagine being married to him and she just has that moment where she's just she has this tiny moment on camera where she just does this little sigh and you're like, oh, no. I'm not romantic, you know. I never was. I ask only a comfortable home. She knows she's got a lifetime of being bored out of her mind. And then when you come back and you visit her again... And she's worked out exactly how to have how this to marriage. Handle it. And she's like, beautiful. it's fine. I, I find I do very well. So it often happens that a whole day passes in which we have not spent more than a few minutes in each other's company. She's picking him out of the house. Yeah. I think it sounds like she's Sometimes got... we, we go a whole day with only five minutes seeing each other. You go, yeah. I find that I can bear the solitude very cheerfully. I find myself. Quite content with my situation, Lizzie. <laughs> and it plays with all that lovely subtext. You, you as an audience, the total clarity, you understand what the joke is there. It's got beautiful sitcom bones in it. Andrew Davis has brought that out, with the casting and Simon Langton's brought it in the direction. They direct it like a sitcom where you are aware of these characters, what they're saying, what they really mean. That's all they're in the yeah, writing. Yeah, the characters great, are so the clear. The subtext is like... Yeah, yeah it's just really but great. But it's for you to fill in. And yes, fit, and which is so enjoyable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just watched that scene again of the proposal at the end of episode three. His first proposal. Yeah. So good. All those like suppressed emotions. In vain I have struggled. It will not do. 
my feelings will not be repressed. You must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you. If you are following the arc of this, as in the we're talking about A plots, B plots, C yeah, plots, they're sorry. all beautifully done. But if you're following the arc of this and you're following that A plot, I thought we'd do that classic thing where they hate each other and they slowly warm to each other. Yeah. But it's superbly done. They are absolutely hot for each other within seconds. Yes. You yeah. read that as an audience and you go, well, so what's, what what, in what's the way? What's going to happen? Yeah, and yeah. And the obstacles are put in the way straight away. And then you watch the inevitability of where it's going to go is how the romance works. Miss Bennett. Mr Darcy. I am come to inquire after my sister. On foot. As you see. Maybe we just predict it because everything follows the same pattern now. But yeah, that midpoint, it was actually something you had sent to me, which was a podcast with Craig Mazin. Mm, yeah. It talks about the importance of the midpoint. And it said that a midpoint in a drama is usually where your protagonist tries the right way to solve their problem yeah. for the first time. Yeah. But they are punished for it. So in P&P, it's the proposal where he asks her to marry him. Yeah. And she refuses him. In declaring myself thus, I am fully aware that I will be going expressly against the wishes of my family, my friends, and I hardly need add my own better judgment. And so she is honest for the first time to him, yeah. which is the right way to solve her problem. I have never desired your good opinion, and you have certainly bestowed it most unwillingly. And he professes his love for the first time, but they're punished for it in that... Yeah, it all goes wrong. It all goes wrong. It's a horrific... That's brilliant. Horrific, yes. And then what you're waiting for is for that to be tried again when the characters have either moved or shifted to a point where it will pay off differently. Yes, exactly. Isn't it? Very clever. It's very clever. I'm sorry to cause pain to anyone, but it was most unconsciously done and I hope will be of short duration. The formal shape of it and the fact that it's it's to do with these chess pieces. I always like the idea of a chessboard within sitcom and comedy writing because the point is you're supposed to be able to predict how characters are going to move. So a knight always moves like a knight and a bishop always moves yeah, like a bishop. Yeah. So you know, and as you're moving them around, you go, oh, hang on, that appeared to be, we were set up for checkmate there. That's the end of the game. And then yeah, they found out, no. oh, they couldn't get it and it didn't work. Oh. And then you're watching slowly as they move the pieces around to a point where inevitably it will work at the end. And it's a formal, I mean, it's a ball, it's a choreography. But you still feel, ballet. don't you still feel, I, I still feel absolutely on tenterhooks at the yeah. end of the thing going, it might not work out. It yeah. might not work out that they might not manage to reach each other. These tiny things that you can say that might ruin your chances. That moment when Lady Catherine comes to her house and goes, oh, there's a prettiest bit of wilderness and goes, <laughs> takes her off for the walk and yeah. then asks her to deny that she has any designs on Darcy and she refuses to deny it. But she has to tread this incredibly fine line of going, I'm not going to, I can't say that I want him to because you can't say that. Tell me once and for all, are you engaged to him? I am not. But I also can't deny that in strong enough terms, because then he'll never ask. And will you promise me never to enter into such an engagement? Yeah. And you're like, oh, my God, it really matters what you say right now. I will make no promise of the kind. And I must beg you not to importune me any further on the subject. Not so hasty, if you please. I have another objection. Your youngest sister's infamous elopement. I know it all. Not only the stakes high in the sense that there's oblivion beckoning if you don't manage to get these these matches to work correctly. And it's unhappiness, isn't it? It's not just financial. Mr. Marrying yeah. Mr. Collins is a terrible oblivion. Just accepting the financial support and having a miserable, miserable, lonely life. Uh, I mean, it, even now when I am allowed to work and, you know, females are allowed to have jobs and blah, 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 blah. It's still a massively important decision who you end up marrying. Yeah. And I would argue it still makes a bigger difference to many women than it does to many men <laughs> in that if you end up with someone who doesn't do any domestic work yeah. you are yeah. you have you have consigned yourself to a two jobs a, two jobs <laughs> for life you know so you know it is a important thing even now and that's yeah. in a much less oppressive environment you know i remember talking to uh i might have been jenny colgan i was talking to talking to someone about about the idea of romance and romantic uh, fiction so the really funny thing is that men always talk about men. This is a huge gender generalisation. Okay. Men always talk about like romantic comedy and romance stories as if the stakes are low because they're not about diffusing a bomb. Right. And yet 
the most important decision you will ever actually make will be about romance and who you want to be with or whether you do want to be with someone, what kind of person you want to be with. Yeah, what for, mo- for lots of people. For yeah. almost all of us, the decision yeah, uh, somewhere about what is your relationship status going to be for your life. Yeah. I'm never going to be asked to defuse a bomb. So it's pointless me reading thousands and thousands of thrillers about how to drive a tank because it's never going to happen to me. Men are obsessed by learning skills and they, they, they dismiss women's fiction or, or fiction that is traditionally loved by women as being, it's about nothing. And you went, or possibly or, about everything. It might be. But um, yeah, I mean, they have those discussions in PMP, don't they? Yeah. About where like Charlotte Lucas is saying, you can never find out what the person you're going to marry is going to be like. Yeah. And so it's best not to know. She's like, it's all rubbish. You can never actually guess what someone's going to be like after you've married them. Yeah. And you're going to be stuck with them. So you might as well just get stuck with somebody and then live with whatever they're like. It's a massive and gamble. Yeah. Yeah. And then Lizzie's like, no, you've got to work out what someone's like before you marry them. You've got to ascertain their character. You've got to work out if they've got a good character. You see that from her. Basically, it's the choice between like a pig and a poke thing. As in, you just go, oh, sorry, I'll just take whatever comes whatever comes <laughs> yeah, up the branch. Yeah, goes. Mr. Collins tends the gardens himself and spends a good part of every day in them. The exercise must be beneficial. Oh, yes. I encourage him to be in his garden as much as possible. You get to see what the alternative will be, which is marrying someone without checking who they are. They're taking that risk. All of them are taking that risk, going, what will our lives be? And then he has to walk to Rosings nearly every day. So often? Is that necessary? Perhaps not. But I confess I encourage him in that as well. And the other thing with this is it's TV. The TV... You can't cast, or it's quite hard to cast with people as young as they would actually have been. Yeah. And when there's 15 and 16-year-olds, they're played by 20-year-olds. Well, how old was Julia Sawala when she made this? She was pretty young. She's pretty young, but she's mostly playing a 15, 16-year-old. Yeah. Little fact check, Julia Sawala, born 1968, so she would have been 26 when making this show, making her 10 years older than the character of Lydia. Everyone in this is committing themselves to a lifetime at quite a young age. Yes, yeah, yeah. Which I think about our parents going, my parents certainly got married quite young. And I go, how did you know? It frightens me because I had a few goes, I had various other relationships. <laughs> but my mum and dad got married quite young. And I go, how did you know? My mum and dad risk. got married young and then got married again and then got married again. And then they got married again. <laughs> And I think that's the way a lot of their generation did it. Was it, it's just like by having eight or nine wives. Yeah. I think that's the, that's the what, My parents stuck together. I, got, I don't know how. If wow, I, amazing. If I wow. was stuck with the person I thought I'd get married to age about 20, this would be a very different life. And right, yeah, yeah. You see that commitment and how difficult it would be to get divorced, the disgrace that would be associated with it. All the stakes in here are absolutely massive. And yet there's a really strange understanding that Jane Austen is this sort of small stakes domestic romance thing. And you oh, well, I've never thought that, Joel. So that's your, your saying awful. all that in the first place. And oh, I've always thought it's all very important. The only reason I'm saying this is I listened to, because I thought I'd listened to some academics. I listened to three male academics talking oh, about this on the way over here. Okay. And my God, how dismissive they were of it shocked me and so maybe I'm bringing that prejudice I'm bringing my own prejudice uh, but to say that I think that what's amazing about Jane Austen is is that language of these stakes are massive it's really important this is a very important drama and it's existential for all the people in it yeah I mean it does have that there's a comedy teacher called Steve Kaplan who always says that yeah. rom-coms he has a rule which is like one lie per movie there's no double mumbo jumbo is what Blake yeah. Snyder calls it you can only have one lie Steve Kaplan always said that the lie is that love will solve your problems. <laughs> <laughs> You're allowed that one. <laughs> Which I thought, oh yeah, that's a good, that's the lie in a rom-com. Yeah, yeah. Is that, that love will actually, you know, it'll change you or be better. But in some ways, presumably, you know, it, it can solve some of your problems. Well, also, but the declared problem in this is so beautifully financial and laid out as such when Mrs. Bennett is talking about the future they've got. It's also they, having to bang someone you really don't fancy, isn't it? Well, yeah, but the practicality of going, what are you going to have to do in order, within this society where they've been dealt a bad hand in the sense that they've got too many girls and no male heir, yeah. and the house is entailed, so the house is at stake, the family's at stake, they've got to sort of horse trade their daughters yeah. to keep their heads above water because yeah. they have no way of making money. So even though the idea in Steve Kaplan's terms is that the lie is that love will solve your problems... Well, for Mrs. Bennett, love will solve her problems. Yeah, well, poor old Mrs. Bennett. I mean, she's just great, isn't she? She's just a brilliant character. I love how Jane Austen hates a hypochondriac as well. She's just, 
stinkiest good. It's my nerves. No one knows what I suffer because I never talk of it. You see, it's that, um, she's got that character in Persuasion as well, the sister in Persuasion, presumably in a time where you could die yeah. from getting a sniffle on a walk. Yeah. You really don't want to be around people who are like, I'm fainting. I'm gonna, you know, like, you just be like, God damn it. Earn it. Really <laughs> cough up blood. Alison Stedman plays that absolutely brilliantly because it is a pure sitcom character. She's got a trope that you can follow. She's so good. And she's yeah. just like, I'm, you know, she's a truly terrible <laughs> female antagonist, isn't she? She's worse than like Carrie's mum or something. She's like, <laughs> but you can understand she, why. Though. Yeah, because she's so, but she's so embarrassing. <laughs> she's like, she's so horrendously embarrassing. And having just been writing mother-daughter relationship <laughs> myself, I truly appreciate you the love artistry. A toxic <laughs> creating a great toxic creating mom. Creating a great toxic mom. Exactly. Yeah. So she's a great comedy toxic mom. My book has a toxic mum in who's not so it is funny sometimes yeah. but isn't just isn't only funny it's sort of also quite but, but I think terrifying there's, but, a joy, um, there's a joy in a monster she, and, you, and why it's still funny 200 and so years later is that impulse is so natural to a mother to fuss and to, to want the best for her kids and then ruin their lives yeah. at the same time but I never complain <laughs> I never because you see I never complained it's that where I'm just like god damn it shut stop, up stop shut declaring up. it stop telling everybody you never complain <laughs> that's so like me I'm that I'm that I'm like I'm so I get on with things like Miss Bennett catastrophizes yeah yeah she's like we'll all be thrown out of the house and the Delphi, she's right. Of course, she's, they, but, she's but right. That 200 years later, we can still go, yeah. do you recognise that? Of yeah, course of course. You do. Yeah. Because it's an impulse. Yeah. I mean, me, I'm, I myself am a terrible hypochondriac, so I could, <laughs> I'm always like checking my pulse and I'm definitely ill. Definitely getting ill. Are you still alive? Are you okay? Uh, just how about. You, just feeling? about still alive now. Thanks, Joel. Okay, just thought I'd check. My dear, do not give way to such gloomy thoughts. Let us hope for better things. Let us flatter ourselves that I might outlive you. Malingering and hysteria were the two conditions that women were believed to suffer from, as in being overdramatic and hysterical yeah. and about diseases they didn't have. And they used to put them in homes for it. That's yeah, what yeah. they were sent to asylums yeah. for malingering and hysteria. There, wasn't there a bit where the hysterical women would go to the yeah. doctor to get um, finished off, basically? <laughs> so really? they, Yeah, so it turned out they were like, oh, we think we might have found a cure for this uh, <laughs> <laughs> Which is that we make them come and then they that aren't quite so unhappy anymore. We were like, no, really? No shit, Sherlock. That, that's not dealt with in Pride and Prejudice. No, but, but, but it, that, still, it does inform it. Yeah, yeah. It does inform it. And the, also the whole thing of just having to not act on your sexual impulses. Obviously much higher stakes for the women not to act on their sexual impulses because if they act on them they might end up pregnant they might end up cast yeah. up by society they might end up you know all of these things yeah. so so trying not to act on your sexual impulses is a really really important thing for them but i think that's part of the reason why it's so appealing to watch isn't it is that is all the sexual tension i mean yeah. i i do think that a lot of the way that modern romances tend to get played out uh, where you know you get the characters together and then Take, break them up again and get yeah. them together and break them up. But I do think there is a that simmering thing where yeah. nobody actually acts on their feelings. Yeah, lots is, and lots of sideways looks. Lots and lots of sideways looks. It's just so, you know, fascinating to watch, isn't it? It's so gripping. Yeah. And also I think it does speak as, again, maybe this is a bit spit down the sexes, but I think a lot of women like watching those stories where it's really drawn out. Yeah, I know yeah. when I'm... You know, I've been writing a tiny bit of writing for soap and things like that, and they're immediately like, "Okay," and then they kiss. I'm like, "No, wait, no, a long wait time. six months, <laughs> <laughs> wait six months, and then they can maybe touch the back of each other's hands, and you'll have everybody's going to be watching it. Yeah. All the women will be like, wow, when's it going to happen? Rather than you know, whereas the guys will be like, yeah, then they bang, then the next thing happens, yeah, then, yeah. you know, I'm like, no, no." It's just, yeah, so I think there is just a massive joy in the long drawn out romance, isn't there? Hold up. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Talk about Pride and Prejudice, this particular thing. It's the way that Mr. Darcy has played. Colin Firth does a brilliant oh, job with it. Great. It's when he's it's the looking at her. It's the simmering. It's just, he looks at her when she's singing or whatever, yeah. and you're just like, oh my God. Imagine someone looking at you like that. It's the slight unreadability. I was really enjoying it play out to realise after a while that he's not just arrogant, he's shy. Oh, he's yeah. awkward. He's and he goes, so shy. It's a beautiful bit of playing. And he plays it really well without doing the Hugh Grant stammering shyness. Yeah. There's that great scene where she's playing the piano and he comes up to yeah. speak to her and and she teases him. I, you know, you should practice your instrument because he says, oh, I can't. Yeah. I don't know how to speak to people. And it's like, well, I, and she says, oh, well, I don't play this piano very well, but I've always assumed that's my fault because I don't take the time to practice. I have not that talent which some possess of conversing easily with strangers. I do not play this instrument so well as I should wish to. But I have always supposed that to be my own fault because I would not take the trouble of practising. It's such a gentle, nice challenge as well. And you, it's also the sort of challenge which I suppose you hope might exist within a good relationship, isn't it? Yeah. Is that when you're in a good relationship, you're able to tease each other and challenge each other and... It's a moment of thawing within their within their relationship. Yeah, I, yeah. I really like that because it said brilliantly. I thought the fact that a lot of the women in these things have to learn a skill, a piano, being witty, whatever, and the men just have to stand there. And that brilliant <laughs> thing of him just being rich and unattainable is enough. And yeah, she says he to him, just wanders in and coming in. You're terrifying me. Coming do you want to make it? an effort? Do you want yeah, to come yeah. and try and meet me halfway? Because I'm making an effort. I'm not a great pianist, but I'm doing this to reach you. Do you want to learn a repartee and banter? We can do these skills together and meet yeah, each other. Yeah, it's sweet, isn't it? It's a lovely thing to say. <laughs> and that's a, that's a brilliant thing because that starts to thaw the two of them. And I love the way that I, I was watching in the background just because it's so nice to watch her. She's so Lucy Bryan's in the background, always playing the piano in the background and no one noticing her at all. No, yes. The one who's really worked really hard and it's just totally <laughs> glasses, books in the background. I did wonder, everyone always says, says Lizzie Bennett is Jane Austen. I did think whether Lucy Bryan's, whether Mary is actually Jane Austen, the one who's really, really clever and bookish in the background. Oh, who no really? One spots, no one actually sees her. She was, oh. Jane Austen was like the youngest of, or the second youngest of seven or something. The oh, little girl she? who no one notices. Oh. I, I it was so sweet. It behoves us all to take very careful thought before pronouncing an adverse judgment on any of our fellow men. Oh, Lord. Did you have that in your in your life growing up? Did you? We used to have, there were punishments. I'm just trying to think about like the punishments for making jokes and things like for <laughs> not making a good enough joke. Really? Did you have, I mean, no. we used to have a thing in my family where if a joke died, we had a two minute silence. <laughs> Did I tell you that? <laughs> so my brothers, if you, if you made a joke and you didn't get a laugh, they go, okay, two minutes silence for Whoa. the joke that died. No, everybody shut up. Abby's joke died. Wow. Uh, yes, it's quite hard. It was quite hard. This, was this, is, this is the comedy writing version of those those things where someone stop playing the piano like Murray Wilson to Brian Wilson, break your hands. Break your hands off. <laughs> Keep practicing. Keep, Get like stand, better. Standing on your toes as you do the ballet. <laughs> is that is that the thing, is it? Um, but I do think that there is, you know, because the stakes are high, yeah. they have to be, you know, she has to be very witty, doesn't she? She has to come up with the right thing to say and the right way to tease him and the right way to blah, 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 blah. Yeah. That moment that the piano is, is that defining where they're equals and they're 
and their his haughtiness, his entitlement and things yeah. starts to crumble and you think... Yeah, and eventually he does give up his sense of entitlement, doesn't he? He gives up a bit of his pride and she gives up a bit of her prejudice. And it's, just, it's a really nice... In terms of titling a thing... Yeah. If you want to state the goals, state the goals in the in the title of the thing, you go, okay, again, the clarity is brilliant and yes. it's said out loud. It has that classical shape where they fit together in order to yeah. take away each other's take away each other's floor. I don't know if has it been done that well. It's a masterclass in it. There's a bunch of stuff in this that you think it's famous for. It has the ultimate smouldering, inaccessible hero, Mr. Darcy, to the extent that it is literally borrowed for Bridget Jones and works again. And it also has the world's greatest opening scene with a declaration of how the plot's going to work. A single man of large fortune, my dear. What a fine thing for our girls. You must know that I'm thinking of his marrying one of them. For a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. <laughs> it's a truth universally acknowledged. You're literally going to say at the beginning of the book how the book yeah, works. Yeah, this is like, hi guys, this is the theme. And then the first bit of dialogue um, from Mrs Bennet is, is what she needs to do. Obviously, mm. we're talking about the TV thing, but the, the book, it's so heavy on dialogue. Yeah. Like, it's compared to other books of the time, it's like very, very dialogue and action heavy. They don't stop for long descriptions of things. It's It moves along. So as an adaptation, you're literally going through the highlighter pen. Yeah, like, you just go, <laughs> there you go. You put that entire scene in as is. <laughs> just put that entire scene in. The name Andrew Davis attached to a television drama is fast becoming a hallmark of excellence. Equally rare is his ability to adapt almost any novel into award-winning television. Having made it all seem rather difficult and strenuous and a bit like gladiatorial combat, never be afraid to just copy out the best bits. I think she doesn't even write he said very often. She just does the dialogue. And I love that way she does dialogue where she just will sometimes just do a dash yeah. and then the next bit of rubbish that the, whoever it is saying. <laughs> and then it, so you can just go, you know, it's basically go, you know, the kind of thing. But it's also, it's an eavesdropper's way of writing. And it, it feels like if you're writing this out as a, as a screenplay, an interior or whatever, even though the Napoleonic Wars are on the moment, we don't go we don't cut to a battlefield or a naval warship. It is going to be indoors, garden, yeah. ball, yeah, yeah, indoors, yeah. garden, ball. So the actual settings are... Obviously, they are having enormous significance if she goes to someone else's house and the house has value, whatever. But what's interesting is what people say, what they do reveal and don't reveal. So it is all driven by dialogue, yeah, as your yeah. life would be if it was domestic. It's about talking. It's yeah. all about and chat. And you've got nothing else. Yeah, that's all there is. That's all there is. There's no, you can't go, oh, actually, I'm just going to go and listen to a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Will you join us, Miss Bennett? I thank you, no. You prefer reading to cards, do you? Singular. <laughs> Miss Bennett despises cards. She's a great reader and has no pleasure in anything else. <laughs> I love the fact they're indoors and there is palpably nothing to do. Miss Eliza Bennett, let me persuade you to follow my example and take a turn about the room. It's so refreshing. Yeah, there's yeah. cards. There's a ball, which would be a big thing. There's playing the piano occasionally. There's that. There's jobs. There's jobs. There's lots of like embroidering things yeah. and fixing things and doing your hat. Keeping yourself making your, busy. Yeah, doing, but it's a minimal amount of stuff and it's it's so funny watching them fill the time. That brilliant thing where Darcy says they've been walking around the room in order to show themselves off. Yeah, yeah. Shall sure. we get up and walk around? <laughs> Will you not join us, Mr. Darcy? That would defeat the object. What do you mean, sir? Why, that your figures appear to best advantage when walking and that I might best admire them from my present position. Should we take a turn to show off that our figures might be seen to advantage? It's like, yeah, what do we do next? Should we stand up? Should we sit down? <laughs> it's brilliant. Just the worst, most awful. Just but again, she's posh and yeah. she's awful. Yeah. So Jane Austen is not going the posher you are, the better you are. If you look at who's on the, the class stratum above, they're all awful. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a bit of sort of slightly sort of middle class sitcom awareness of how silly the mum is and how silly the, the younger sisters are. But the upper classes are absolutely hateful. Yeah. They're and they nice don't people. have good marriages either. No. Like so it's but again, that's like the the stakes are set out with the Mr. and Mrs. Bennett having a terrible marriage, aren't they? A marriage where either partner cannot love or respect the other. That cannot be agreeable to either party. As we have daily proof. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, this is what happens if you marry somebody who you're not going to get on with. Yeah. And who you don't respect. Yeah. That's the whole thing, is that he does not respect his wife. You have no compassion on my poor nerves. You mistake me, my dear. I have a high respect for your nerves. They've been my old friends these 20 years at least. And it makes him a bad person. 
yes. just slowly chips away at his values and his until he's like because he's doing all these stupid games in order to get by his life yeah. without screaming at his wife and telling her to just get out. <laughs> You're in the right, my dear. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I shall write to Mr. Bingley, informing him that I have five daughters and he's welcome to any of them that he chooses. They're all silly and ignorant like other girls. Well, Lizzie has a little more wit than the rest. But then he may prefer a stupid wife, as others have done before him. There, will that do? He's a terrible father. Like he's yeah, he doesn't his help. His favoritism is awful. Yeah. He doesn't help at all. It's constantly this thing that of Elizabeth going, oh, I've got to respect my partner because otherwise I'm going to end up being like my dad. That's the threat. It's not that she ends up like her mum. It's that she ends up like her dad. Yeah. And she's going to be, you know, living with someone who she doesn't trust and doesn't, doesn't respect and using her wit to... Yeah. Pull him down. You're looking forward to what these people are going to be like as a couple. And there are examples within the drama of people who are good and bad oh, couples. Yeah. And, and, and certainly the parents are there to sort of say, this is a couple who sort of, they're not really together. They're sort of two separate people. What the prize is within this is, I suppose, why maybe why it's still popular. The prize here is a modern relationship, a relationship where there's a bit of mutual give and take a bit more respect, a bit more understanding. It's even, I think it's bigger than that because it's like, it's a relationship which nurtures you, right? Yeah. It's a relationship which makes you a better person. You know, in our dreams, that's what a good partnership should do is make yeah. you better than you are. Yeah, they don't stay who they were at the beginning. No. And whereas a lot of the relationships in this are to do with, say, let's get together and then never see each other. Yes. Let's get together and not change each other. And the, the central story about Darcy and, Liz, and Lizzie Bennet is that they've got to change in order to get to each other. And that means that the rest They're of the relationship... They're going to continue changing. Exactly. What that is, and that is what any therapist would tell you is the ideal thing, is you should create something in a relationship that is different than where you started. You shouldn't just dig your heels in and say, well, I won because we still... We got together. Change is inevitable, right? Yeah. So, we're going to get older. Yeah. We're all, <laughs> I suppose that's the biggest thing, isn't it? Is that as you get older, you, you're like, oh, it turns out that, that I'm changing in every conceivable way yeah. all the time. And so even the possibility of staying with somebody, you have to change massively just to stay, stay together. Just yeah. to stand still, you have to be running very fast. Yeah, you're going to change. Still. So the world's going to change around you. Yeah, you might change yeah. your jobs. Having children changes you. Your dynamic, and you've got to be flexible from that from the very beginning. If you stay and you're fixed, you'll snap. Yeah, and, and you'll be disappointed. One day you'll look around and the person won't be the person you 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 met in the first place. And if if you feel that's a betrayal that they change, how dare you change? Yeah, then that's deadly for a relationship as well. Well, I feel like don't you definitely feel like at the end of PMP definitely feel like they're going to have a good marriage, don't you? Yeah, I do as well. You know, when you watch a romantic comedy and go, I'll give them a week. Not slagging off Along Came Polly. But, you know, so there's a classic one where it's she's a kookster and he's a control freak. But uh, you do sort of go, "Mm, I'm not sure that that control freak is going to end up having a long and happy relationship (laughs) with that kookster. (laughs) I I feel like that might not end well. Whereas with the old, there is change in their willingness to be nice and all of that. But there's also change in the deficits of understanding. Yeah. Like because Lizzie Bennett has got the wrong end of the stick. Yes. About something quite important. Yeah. In the whole, with the whole Wickham storyline. Yes. Have you known Mr. Darcy, love? About a month. I've known him all my life. We played together as children. Perhaps you might have noticed the cold manner of our greeting. I confess I did. He's supposed to be the proud one, but she thinks because she's clever, she's worked this all out. She's she's exchanged some gossip, she has some inside knowledge, but she's got the wrong gossip. Again, it's, it's the curse of being clever. Yeah, she's pretty clever. But she might not have the right information. She may have drawn the wrong conclusions. That yes. She's learning stuff about herself, which will then give them a more stable relationship. I do like the fact that Mr. Darcy isn't just a brooding monster. She doesn't just melt the heart of the brooding guy. No. It's not a twilight toxic relationship where the guy... Uh, a Mr. Rochester situation. Yeah. It's not a Jane Eyre. It's not like, you know, in that one, that's literally like you're going to just... She had to get the guy really badly injured yeah, yeah. in order to make him a <laughs> viable possibility. Yeah. What is it? This is her shape. 
And this her voice. She is all here, her heart too. Jane Eyre. The reason that, that works in Jane Eyre is that it's a gothic, so it's fine. Yes, yeah, yeah, it's part rules. of the story, yeah. Those yeah. Rules, it has to be gothic, you have to win over a monster, you have to, sort of, you have to achieve something, you have to change someone, they have to be injured. This is a domestic, and therefore the way they win each other is far more realistic and far less melodramatic and far more to do with them finding each other and learning about each other and changing. And it, yeah, again, you feel far more safe that this might actually work out. That yeah, really I mean, nice. it, definitely, it definitely did work out. Yeah, it did. History tells us. It did. It definitely did. Because this is based on a true story and all that already happened. And they were happy for the rest of their lives. (laughs) Time for a small interruption. This is the staircase wit moment, which I think I might start allowing in the podcasts. You know, when you walk out of a room and think of the thing you should have said on your way out rather than when you should have said it. And podcasts, this is a terrible problem because you're talking about something you're passionate about. And on the way home, you remember the one thing you wanted to say. Um, Abby got in touch and said, I knew what I wanted to say and I completely forgot to say it. And I said, well, just say it and I'll drop it in here. So hopefully this will be at a point where it makes sense. But this is Abby uh, later on that day uh, sending me a message of what she should have said when we were talking. But why not allow it? It's editing. We can do that. Um, I think the reason it's lasted so long is because it's about a woman who uh, values herself and... She, in valuing herself, she teaches, in this case, a guy, but society at large, to value her. Um, so that's why, that's why I think it fits in with modern sensibilities. It's modern sense and sensibilities. There we go. Mr. Doss? Miss Bennett? I... Uh... I did not expect to see you, sir. We understood all the family from home or we should never have presumed... I returned a day early. Now, can we talk about the false memory? What's the false memory? Because I watched six hours of this okay. in bed with a hangover with my wife and we yep. watched it for six hours. We were going to watch one hour and watch six hours of it because it's that good. You can binge Yay. it. It just didn't want to stop. It was brilliant. And we were waiting for Colin Firth to come out of the lake in a wet shirt. Oh. And he doesn't. Does he not? No. Everyone's mixing that up with Dr. No. <laughs> he does not do the Ursula Andress. He goes for a swim, and he, he comes out, and he goes for a walk, and he bumps into Lizzie Bennett later on. He doesn't, he doesn't, like, rise out of the lake. Everyone thinks he rises no out of the lake. He that. We both did. We, the false memory is that is he, he rises, rises from, from the lake. lake. Like, Excalibur style. There's a shot where his... she looks down at the lake and you go, we'll be coming out of that in a minute. It prefigures it. And it's brilliant. It's beautifully directed, but it's incredibly subtle and understated. But he just walks across the... The classic scene we know this from. Named as one of the great moments in British television. And it's so beautiful. There's a little bit of nipple, but otherwise he's just... A tiny bit a of a shadow of nipple. Just That's going for a stroll. Yeah, you see. a fencing shirt. That's all it requires. And again, it's all... Very subtle. I remembered seeing clips of it, and my wife who'd seen it a lot of times earlier, isn't it? Remembered it being far more melodramatic and far more over, far more gothic almost. Well, that's because that's obviously she's remembering that with her vagina. I that's think why, that's what's happening. That's what's going on there. But I think that's part <laughs> of the good thing about it, isn't it? Is that it's that it gives Lizzie's sexuality weight, like. It gives her gaze weight. Yes, totally. So she's looking at this guy and going, that guy's hot. And so you've remembered it because (laughs) you're living in Lizzie's experience and going, oh my God, it's Colin Firth with a wet shirt. I mean, you're right. It's a beautiful moment of female gaze. And it shows you how rarely, certainly at the time, that that female gaze was prioritised, especially by a male director, on screen to say, this is going to be remembered by a generation yeah, of women. Yeah, but also, what is it that, like, it's different, isn't it? Yeah. Because it's not the a guy with his shirt off no. and the bits of, you know, little bits of groin ridge showing <laughs> or whatever you do if the other way around. So it's a, a hot guy who's completely, that bit where he's just walking across the lawn, he's just totally by himself. Yeah. That's why it's so sexy is because he's alone. Yeah. And he doesn't think he's observed. Yes. And so you go, oh my God, look at that person who's just like unobserved, unselfconscious. He's sloughed off all of his social 
that's why you go, oh my God, look, that's that's what's underneath. What's the one underneath all these crazy, sexy rules of haughtiness and he owns a house in Derbyshire and blah, 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 is this person who's danced like no one's watching. Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of that brilliant, it's that Debbie Harry line, isn't it? The, uh, I will give you my finest hour, the time I spent watching you shower. Oh, there which you is go. one of the sexiest female gaze lines in pop. <laughs> just saying, oh, it was great lying in bed, peeping around the, watching you shower. Oh. around the corner, which is a lovely way of saying, I remember hearing that as a, as a kid going, I've not heard that expression of song before. Oh, that is how a woman looks well, at looks a man. At, looks at a guy, yeah. Obviously, we just need some more men in wet shirts. That's what's... <laughs> My, my new TV series, Men, men in Wet Shirts. Welcome <laughs> to Men in Wet Shirts. I will give you my finest hour, the one I spent watching you shower. I will give you my finest hour. I do think Crispin Bonham Carter, his performance as Mr. Bingley, as the just the sweetest, most yeah. open, naive boy in the world and I recognise that relationship so profoundly that friendship between Darcy and Bingley May I be so bold as to claim the next two dances I'm not engaged sir Good And you sir are you fond of dancing too? Oh, I beg your pardon Mrs Bennett may I present my friend Mr Darcy He brought his mean dark brooding He's mate with him his who's like really grumpy and then and he has to go around being super nice to everybody because yeah. his mate's so reserved. <laughs> I hope you have come here eager to dance as your friend has. Thank you, madam. I rarely dance. And that's just so recognisable that you know those guys. The two boys who turn up, it's lovely things like, I don't know, thinking of Cheers, Norman Cliff. Cliff's really boring, but he must be okay because Norman's really nice and he's mates with Cliff. You very often in a sitcom, you'll pair people off and one will be a, wit- a character witness for the other one. Yeah, And Bingley is Darcy's. At the beginning, you go, well, Darcy can't be that much of an arsehole. He must talk sometimes. Yeah. And that's the first clue that he might just be shy or awkward or... And there's that... In- it's interesting because she's really interested, isn't she, in persuasion, Jane Austen, because yeah. she, she did that whole other book about it. Yeah. Darcy's terrible mistake in Lizzie Bennet's eyes is that he persuades Bingley not to marry yeah. Jane. He, he uses his influence yeah. badly. And and then this very nice chap is turned from a, yeah. a perfectly good and happy marriage by Darcy's influence, which he does do, and he's initially unrepentant about it. I think that relationship is so believable. Yeah, totally. Did you ever meet such a proud, disagreeable man? Ma, he will you. I don't care if he does. There's a version of this where Darcy walks in and is the pure Twilight thing, is a mysterious, brooding, vampiric, Byronic figure in the distance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or the gothic version of it. Yeah, the there's cheesy a, version of it. Yeah, yeah there's yeah. a version of it where he is totally inaccessible from, from moment one. And Bingley is a brilliant, again, piece of, amazing piece of writing. Someone who vouches for, he's got a mate. So beautifully played, though. I mean, mm. is he not the cutest Chris Bonham yeah. Carter with that sort of goofy charm? That yeah. He Apparently he's a teacher now. Come, Darcy. I must have you dance. Certainly shall not. An assembly such as this. It would be insupportable. Um, and Jennifer Ely, who has gone to Hollywood, hasn't she now? She's very good. It's all in the side eye. Yeah, she's she very... is constantly little side eye to everything. Oh, and she's also just got that um the actor has to be as intelligent as the character. Yeah. And that's it's hard to act intelligent if you're not intelligent, I'm gonna say this. Yeah, so, no, totally. Like with you know, that has been sometimes when I've been directing, I remember directing although some actors can do it. Yeah. I remember directing a, a young actor and I said, I don't know how to say it, but I think that your character thinks faster than you do. Right. And she immediately just did it. Wow. And I was like, Oh, oh, okay. You, 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 so you can act yeah. cleverer than I suppose you know what's going to happen next because it's been written down as a script. But yeah. uh, but what an amazing skill. I think it's hard to place someone cleverer than you. And I think yeah. presumably Jennifer Ely is just is, is incredibly bright. Yeah. And so has got that <laughs> and has got that sort of wry dancing amusement at everything. And her relationship in terms of there being pairs, her relationship with Susan Harker playing her sister yeah. is really, really nice. It's very, very warm. And you go, there's a nice divide where the two older sisters are... Just always makes me cry that bit. Oh, I'm no. just sorry. I'm just <laughs> gone. Cry. I'm gone. That, that, that relationship, I suppose because she's like my sister and that 
just she's just a nice person. <laughs> like my yeah. sister's actually nice, <laughs> and I'm not. And so I really, really connected to that storyline that my sister will. She always has this the most generosity of spirit yeah. when she's interpreting anybody's actions, and so she's just actually good. And that thing of having this kind of example of actual sweetness yeah. and niceness in that character, I just love it. One of us at least will have to marry very well. And since you were quite five times as pretty as the rest of us and have the sweetest disposition, I fear the task will fall on you to raise our fortunes. But Lizzie, I would wish, I should so much like, to marry for love. And so you shall. <laughs> Actually, I mean, that, that's testament to how well this works. I mean, this is, was written in 1813, and it's a fairly faithful adaptation. Of it. Yeah. No one's ever objected and said this is a terrible version of, of the book. And it's now 200-odd years old. And because of its sealed world and its concentration on people and the way that people interact and support each other and hurt each other and, and expect things of each other, it's still powerful enough that you can just think of those two sisters and burst into tears. <laughs> That the characters are so real. And it's a comedy because comedy is really honest about people. Um, yeah. The plot is really good. Plot's really well written. But it's plot's not. Plot's perfect. But the plot so isn't what well you're watching, weirdly. You're watching yeah. the characters. Plot comes from character. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The plot and the character are one and the same, aren't they? And yeah. then people get what they're just desserts. And also because we, l- we love when people get together, don't we, John? <laughs> Because we're like, they're gonna get together. They're gonna win. It's gonna solve all their problems. It's gonna solve most of their problems. But I don't know. We're a species. We've got to get together and look exactly. after each other. There is a hope that basically the people who've got this is. A, I mean, the whole story. It's about people who have a again a prejudice against each other, who don't look like they're going to get on, and they learn to get on, which is a pretty fundamental, hopeful human thing. For a thing to be about, it is. It is indeed. It's a fundamentally hopeful thing, as in you watch two people who who declare at the beginning they're going to be enemies become friends, and that's a really lovely thing, isn't it? It is because more than a romance, it's it's the the mismatched romance has something to say. I think that's deeper than just saying, "Oh, I fancied him," she fancied him because <laughs> they become each other's antagonists, don't they? And in a classically structured story, the protagonist absorbs right. the traits of the antagonists. They eat their brain. <laughs> they eat their brain and then they own them and they become part of them. So what you're saying is this is basically a, a love story written by spiders. Yes. <laughs> All love stories are written by spiders. All love stories are just eating each other's brains. All right. <laughs> I mean, what a beautiful thing to hope for. One day we will all learn yeah. simply to eat each other's brains. brains. And then, then become one large uber brain. That's the That's just fantastic. Answer. Oh, yeah. that, that's the best reading I've ever had of Jonas. <laughs> thank you for bringing Brian and Brett. <laughs> Comfort Blanket was presented and produced by Joel Morris for the Cheese and Pickle family of podcasts find us on social media and don't forget to like and subscribe.